you can open your Bibles uh, to the book of Judges. We'll be really mostly looking at chapters 3 to 5 tonight. There are some verses in your packet if you got one of those when you came in. Are there any more left? You may see there are any more left. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, you ne- I never know. I'll print off you know, a whole mess of them sometimes, and it's you know, 85 too many, and then uh, print off sometimes, and it's not enough. So, um, All right. But we're going to be in the book of Judges, and we're going to go a little bit further tonight. We, I had mentioned last time that we were together that there, there's 12 judges altogether in the book of Judges, but there's six that are considered major judges. And they get the lion's share of the text. And the rest of the judges get sometimes just one verse. And so we're not going to spend very much time on the minor judges. And you'll see the reason why tonight. Uh, but because mainly because the, the author himself doesn't spend much time on the individ, those minor judges. And so we're going to spend more time on the major judges. Of the six major judges, we're going to talk about um, three of them tonight. And, uh, and so we're going to cover at least what, what happens in their um, situations and, and talk a little bit about that. Just as a reminder of where we've been, timeline-wise, the book of Judges is taking place sometime between around 1360 B.C. through 1084 B.C. Remember, it goes backwards in the B.C. era, so uh, counting backwards, 1360 to 1084, so the entire book of Judges really covers about 300 years of time in the land when there is no king, as we'll see, and there is a lot of confusion and a lot of turmoil and really a lot of really bad, bad things. All right, but that's about 300 years of Israel's time. So we're still, um, by the time we get through the book of Judges, we're still almost a thousand years before Christ. And, uh, and, and so we're going to cover the rest of the ground a, a subsequent to that. Over the next couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to do tonight, obviously, the first three Judges. The next Wednesday, we're going to do the second, the last three Judges. And then I'm going on vacation. Dan Arsenault is supposed to be here on that Wednesday to, to teach when I'm gone. And then I'll come back and pick up um, on the ethical complications of the book of Judges. Or we'll talk about all the many things that are going on, and then we're gonna, I'm going to try to also connect some theological ties into the New Testament, the book of Judges, before we go on into the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and then the Kings. Um, so, timeline-wise, 1360 to 1084. Um, in that period, between 1360 and 1084, 1085, uh, Israel remains in this uh, vacuum. They are almost completely devoid of international affairs. Nobody seems to reach into the land to really do much, at least, to try to kick them out of the land. They have what more or less is free reign until the time when the monarchs begin to be established and there's the battle with the Philistines and, and, and David finally comes in and things like that. Once the monarchy is established... In Israel, it is theirs, and there are really no challengers until Babylon comes along, or Assyria, and then Babylon later on. So uh, this period of 1360 to 1084-85 is a a time when they are more or less untouched by all these communities, all these countries around that, that really do want control of that land. 
so it's sort of a God's providence to Israel that they're able to control this land. Now, let's remember when we say judges, we're not really talking about people, except we'll see as an exception in the case of Deborah, we're not mostly talking about people that are judges that sit on a bench that hear cases and make decisions. These judges are military leaders. They're tribal chieftains. They're people that God raises up with strength and power and military might to crush other people, to crush enemies, really, to drive them out, to do what Israel was supposed to do initially when they got into the land, but for some reason lacked the faith to do. And so God is raising them up as a means of actually accomplishing what Israel was supposed to. Now, what we see in the book of Judges, and what you will notice if you read through it, is this pattern. It goes around and around and around, and actually, it's a pattern that Israel will continue on to, until Christ comes in, onto the scene, but basically what we're going to see is Israel's idolatry. They're going to reach out and begin to worship other gods, and when they do, God is going to raise up a, somebody to come in and oppress them, to squash them, to put them under his rule. And when they do, they're going to exist under his rule for a number of years, and they're going to cry out and, and moan to God in repentance. And God is then going to raise up a leader to judge the people that are oppressing Israel. And then once he judges uh, the people that are oppressing Israel, all of a sudden Israel is instead of going to return, instead of returning thanks, is going to turn back to idolatry once again. And so it's this steady pattern over and over and over in, their, in Israel's life. The name, then. You said it so well. Say again? The judges, the people. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. yes, exactly. It is a, there, there's a judgment uh, for, in, in large part for Israel on, uh, uh, on their behalf to other nations that are, that are coming against them. So he's a judge. He's coming in to execute God's judgment on the people that are oppressing Israel, and their re repentance is what begins to fuel that. Uh, so, as we look at the book of Judges as a whole, this book, as much as any other book in the Old Testament, is about leadership. The vast majority of what, is, what the book of Judges is concerning is who is the leader of the people and what do they do with their leadership? And what you're going to see is that as the leader goes, so goes the nation. When they reach out and they indulge in idolatry, they have no leader. And what happens when they reach out and grab the idols of the Canaanites? God provides a Canaanite leader to lead them. And he squashes them and he puts them under his thumb. And then they cry out in repentance and God provides them not really a godly leader. And this is the misconception about the book of Judges as a whole. A lot of people look at the book of Judges and they think God is instituting his moral authority on the nation of Israel with this person that he raises up. That's not really true. In fact, what he's doing is showing them throughout the entire book where their idolatry ultimately will lead them. And the reason that you can see that 
is because from the beginning of the book of Judges all the way through to the end, what you're going to watch is Israel's downward spiral through these judges. The judges are kind of like water in a toilet bowl. <laughs> it starts off in a big circle. That's okay. They're not terrible. Then they progressively get worse and worse until the very end of the book where Israel is in such moral decay that they're doing things that are unimaginable, that we find horrible, we find atrocious. We're going to see them depicted in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, to be honest with you, the reason why there's going to be, I'm going to spend at least part of one night on just the ethical problems in Judges is because when we read it, there's some things that happen in this book that just will make your skin crawl. And to think that the, the nation of Israel is doing this is unimaginable. Sacrificing your own daughter? Cutting up a woman and spreading her body parts all over the place? I mean, this is just awful stuff that happens in the book of Judges. But you'll notice as we get there, it happens at the end of the book. And the reason that it happens at the end of the book is not only because time-wise it happened closer to the end, but it's also showing the moral decay that Israel is going through. Because about the time we start to see those just awful scenes depicted in the book of Judges, we also hear this constant refrain, there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, Israel doesn't start there. They get there eventually after years and years of worshiping idols. The expression, you are what you worship, comes to roost in the book of Judges. And so it helps us a little bit, knowing the context of the book and how the book is structured, to, to realize what those scenes are actually depicting. And they're not God's good blessings to the nation of Israel. In fact, it's, it's going to be a bit of judgment towards the nation of Israel as we get there. So, um, basically, the entire book of Judges is not only watching Israel's downward spiral, but by the time we get to the end, there's this shocking reality that we wake up to that Israel is in desperate need of a deliverer. They're in desperate need of an actual leader. Well, what's going to follow after the book of Judges? Ah, they want a king. Are they ready for a king? No, they actually get exactly what they're ready for, a terrible, cowardly king. But then, ultimately, God gives them what they hope to be the king. With David, there's going to be tons of messianic overtones to the whole story of David where we're looking at him and we're going, man, this guy is awesome. And then ultimately, we go, okay, well, it's not David. He's had too many battles. He has too much blood on his hand. But then, oh, his son's coming along, Solomon, who's going to build the temple. And this is now, this is really promising. The Messiah is here going to institute the temple in the promised land and unite the tribes and everybody's happy and it's going to be great. And he falls into idolatry as well. And so we're going to see this pattern replicate itself. But Judges is getting us ready for the kingdom of God to actually be established. And by the end of the book, we're crying out for someone to come along and actually lead these people into uh, be their deliverer. Lead them into uh, uh, 
the promised land and peace and prosperity and, and actual rest, which is a main theme going through Judges. So that's what we're desiring by the end of the book. Now, um, the book of Judges, like I said, is going to highlight six Judges during this time, and it shows their increasing corruption. The Judges start off fairly well. We're going to see tonight Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, along with Barak is kind of connected to Deborah, but they're going to become increasingly worse, especially, we're going to, we're going to see it even tonight, there's a progression, or a regression, I should say, here, uh, even tonight with these first three, but then as we get to the next three next week, you're going to see them progressively go down the toilet bowl, I mean, go re- to the really bad. Um, so there's just this increasing corruption, uh, beginning with Jephthah, the years of oppression, and this is something really significant that you can notice in the book as you go, that beginning with Jephthah, which is later on in the book and starting in chapter 10, the years of oppression begin to outlast the years of peace. So early on in the book, we see, okay, the years of oppression are eight years and are 10 years And the years of peace are 40 and 80 and 60 years. But then by the time you get to the end of the Judges, the period of oppression is much longer and the years of peace are much shorter. Let's look at a couple of the verses that we've got here. Judges 10, 8, and then we're going to go all the way through 1631 here in these four verses. Who will read those out loud for us? And then 12, 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Okay, so six years of peace versus in the previous we had for 18 years of oppression. Judges 13, 1. And then Judges 16.31. So 20 years. So these periods of the Judges, they get progressively shorter while the period of oppression gets progressively longer. The more Israel dives into moral depravity and it seems what's happening here is that the narrator has intentionally structured his book to give us the audience as we read some theological reflection on the leaders of Israel. And what he does is he devotes most of the time and most of the verbiage to the morally inferior judges. So in between some of these judges, you'll get some good judges. You'll get a judge, and he's just, he's just given a verse. So this is completely the opposite of the way Hollywood does things, right? So here's the hero coming in to save the day against the protagonist. That's not the way the Bible is structured. The way the Bible is structured gives you all the ingrates, the morally depraved people. I want to show you all the ones that were desperately wicked. And this is the reason why Israel is in the state it's in today, right? 
Um, this is one of the arguments that, honestly, that believers will make, apologists will make for the Bible's credibility, is that Israel spends most of its time in the Old Testament telling you how bad they are. There's not another historical book that does that. When you get to Egyptology and you start studying the nation of Egypt, you don't hear about one loss that they ever have. That's part of the reason why it's so difficult to figure out what years and everything for the nation of Egypt, because they don't advertise their losses. They've had more kingdoms walk in there and replace old regimes than any country around the world, and yet they have never told you about any one of their losses. And yet all you find in the Old Testament, in all 39 books, is how awful the nation of Israel is. How many times they lost. Let, let, yeah, we beat them, but let me tell you about our loss. Right? That's just unheard of. Why would they do that? Uh, because it's a divinely inspired book. That's why. So, um, so anyway, there's the judges come in and they are, uh, the, the narrator spends most of his time talking about the morally inferior judges. So the first one we get to in the book is, uh, is going to be Othniel. But he, the nation of Israel forgets Yahweh. They begin to take part in idols. And he brings in someone to conquer them. Look at Judges 3, 7 to 11. I'll read that there. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim, eight years. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The, uh, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over that person. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So the first, so the first person we get is Kushan Rishathaim of Mesopotamia who comes in. His name is probably not that. Okay, the reason we know is because his name means double wickedness. How many of you mothers really wanted to name your kid double wickedness? Not many mothers do. Uh, this is probably the name that they gave the king once he died. <laughs> was You know who he was. Double wickedness came in. And this is one of those things that you'll see the biblical authors do quite a bit. Then this is one of the reasons it's really hard to trace some of the archaeological evidence of things like this that happened because we don't know the real name of this guy. And we don't know exactly where he's coming from and where, you know, in Mesopotamia is a large area, but we don't know exactly where he's coming from and what his name really was, but we know the epithet that they gave to him once he died was double wickedness. Israel reached out, served the Baals, worshipped them, took part in their ceremonies, the Baals and the Ashtaroths, which are Canaanite gods. And what did God do? But he used this man called double wickedness 
for their wickedness to come in and impress upon them uh, God's will. So they cry out, and what does he do? Following that, the Lord then empowered Othniel by his spirit. And it tells us that specifically there in the passage that um, the Lord rose up Othniel and it says in verse 10 of Judges chapter 3, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. We're going to see this as a theme a number of times, so pin that. We'll come back to it in a few weeks. Uh, but that, that is a major theme coming through here, that these judges are not just out of the kindness of their own heart or out of desperation even driving these people out, but they are empowered by the spirit of God to begin instituting what, what we're going to see ultimately is the kingdom of God. Uh, and this, I think, is a really cool theme that runs all the way through to the New Testament. We'll see that in a few weeks. Um, but anyway, Othniel rises up and he begins to judge. He judges the land for 40 years. And it says, specifically at the end of the passage, so the land had rest for 40 years. We're going to see this a couple of times repeated with these good judges. Is the land had rest. Meaning that there's no enemies, there's no moral oppression, there's no uh, moral ambiguity or anything like that. The, the, under the rule of these judges, the nation served God. There was no uh, moral temptation to pursue idols and things like that. They had driven out the enemy by the Lord's command, and the, and the, nation, the land had rest. You know what doesn't happen toward the end of the book? As Israel begins to slide more and more into moral depravity, the land no longer has rest. It's not mentioned anymore after a few judges. We get a few judges down the line. It just disappears. You think that's intentional? I do. They're falling into moral depravity. Okay, so Othniel rises up. We're not told much about him, but he drives out um, the oppressors. Then once again, the people of Israel then turn to pagan idolatry, and subsequently there is raised up another oppressor, Eglon, the king of Moab. So look at Judges chapter 3 on the back there. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then look at verse 13. And he gathered himself the, Amor uh, the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of the Palms. And so we've got Eglon, king of Moab, that comes in. Now, who, who is Moab? Where is, Mo, where is Moab, I should say? Remember? In the, yeah, in the east. All right, yeah, it's, it's out east. Um, and so king of Moab moves in. He begins to conquer. And what we see is that there's a limited area where this is kind of really focused. It looks like Othniel is, uh, that's happening over the course of the whole land. But then what's going to happen in the book of Judges is it starts off in the south and then begins to slowly move north. And so here's this area around Jericho called the City of the Palms. And um, or nicknamed the City of the Palms. And so he comes in and judges this little area or, or rules this little area. And in response to the cries from the people, God raises up, Yahweh raises up, Ichud of Benjamin, a beguiling assassin. Now you notice something that, to be honest with you, I kind of like Ehud. He's a, he's a, a neat little character in the book of Judges, and my sons 
absolutely love the story of Eglon and Ehud. They did not believe me. Do what? Yeah, yeah, he's left-handed. I'm left-handed, so I kind of like him. Uh, you know, but, but yeah, he, he, he's left-handed, but then he, there's some funny things that happen in the story we'll maybe talk briefly about. And, then, um, and, and, so, and so it's an interesting, interesting little story, but do you notice that we don't get much about Othniel, but he seems to be, he's a, a son, a son-in-law, I guess you would say, of Caleb, and he's, uh, you know, he seems to be a pretty morally upright sort of dude. We don't know a whole lot about him. But then we get this little tricky assassin guy that we don't really know what to do with. He's like, well, hey, he did deliver the nation of Israel, so that's good, but he kind of does it by some trickery. Uh, and that's sort of weird. And progressively, the judges are going to get a little bit more sketchy until we end with Samson, the sketchiest of all. Um, so uh, Ehud uh, comes in, and he's actually uh, he's an assassin. He judges. Now, do you remember how he does it? Uh, he, he goes to pretend to pay tribute to Eglon and give him a gift. And he gives him a gift, and then he goes away from the palace, and then uh, he turns around and goes right back. And he says, I've got a, I've got a message from you, a uh, message to you from God. And the message is a dagger, actually. Um, so we, but Eglon is in his chambers, and he goes, he goes okay, well, uh, you know, they kind of go away into a private place, and, uh, and Ehud takes the dagger off of his thigh, and he stabs Eglon in the belly. And he says Eglon was so fat, his belly just sort of swallowed the, the knife, and uh, it kind of just disappeared. But he, he, so this is kind of a, maybe a little bit crude story, but it's in the Bible, okay? So uh, he uh, stabs him in the large intestine, and uh, excrement spills out, but he's in his chambers. One of the things that's interesting about this story is it seems as though, as you look at the, the story itself, Ehud leaves the chamber and locks the door behind him, which probably means he has a key, which probably means there's someone on the inside that's, that's helping him, right? So there's some interesting things going on, but just like is a typical Hebrew narrative, they leave a lot to the imagination, all right? So you, they give you just enough details to go, I wonder how that happened. I don't know. But he leaves the chamber, and because of the accident that happened while when he got stabbed, it creates something in the chamber, a little odor or something, and the slaves or servants are on the outside of the chamber. The door is locked, and they start to get embarrassed for the king who's in there until later they walk in and they realize that he's been killed. And this gives Ehud enough time to get out of there, go all the way across the country, practically, call some uh, men, some fighting men, to rally around him, head all the way back across the country when the people realize that, oh my goodness, uh, our king's been killed. We need to get out of here. There's an uprising. We don't have a leader. Leaderless now. They mount up and they take off. Well, they only find Yichud standing in the way with all of his men and they just slay them all right there on the, on the path. All right. So it's kind of an interesting story. It's a very different story. And this is the kind of stories you get in the book of Judges. It's very, very strange. So uh, Ehud uh, rules and judges. And then when he dies, uh, Yahweh uh, or uh, the people fall back into uh, slay or into uh, idolatry again. And he raises up two people 
uh, uh, Jabin and Sisera who come in to oppress uh, the nation of Israel. Jabin, J-A-B-I-N, and Sisera, S-I-S-E-R-A. This is a map, by the way. I put this here because I already had the bullet point in. So this is a map of the the whole uh, Ehud story. Um, They're here in Jericho. So you see the river right here. This is the Jordan River. This is the Dead Sea. So we're down towards the south. This is Jericho right here. This is where the vast majority of the story takes place. Uh, Eglon is oppressing there. Um, the Benjaminite, Ehud, comes from Benjamin, comes up here, uh, kills him, rides about halfway across the country into the hills, calls a bunch of people to his uh, arms and says, hey, look, the Lord's going to deliver us. He's given them into our hand. They ride all the way back across to the fords of the Jordan, and they wait right here for them, for the... the um, Oh, country they're from. What was it? Moabites. Sorry. The Moabites to go back to their home country. Moab's down here. So they're going back to their country the only way they came in. And right there on the road is Ichud and his men waiting to slaughter them all. All right. This is good, right? Okay. So now, now, we've, got, now we've got Jabin, king of Hadzor, comes in and his general Sisera who is all the way across the country in, uh, of Hasharoth. And uh, his general is doing most of his dirty work, we find out. Well, Yahweh, they, the people are crying out because now they have been oppressed by Jabin and Sisera. And Yahweh raises up Deborah, who is a prophetess. Ironically, with Deborah, she is a prophetess and she is... on. Uh, I guess you'd say prophesying on behalf of the Lord, but she's not actually the one that does the fighting. She's the one that does the prophesying. This is the first time in the story that we get this role sort of divided between two characters. Ironically, they're also fighting two characters, Jabin, who's the king, and not necessarily the one that's oppressing, and his, his general, Sisera. And now you have Deborah, the prophetess, and her uh, general, if you will, Barak, who's going to do most of the fighting. So basically during this whole skirmish, uh, Deborah, the prophetess, tells Barak, if you go up to the mount, then you get your 10,000 men and he'll meet you there. Uh, Sisera will come out with his men and he'll meet you there. Now we're told in the text of scripture that Sisera has a lot of men, 900 chariots. I mean, this is a, a force to be reckoned with. Deborah tells Barak, hey, you get your men and you go up to the mount and you're going to, there, there you're going to meet um, Sisera and you're going to fight him on Mount Tabor. And so he goes and gets his men, 10,000 men, and they meet on top of the mount and they encounter Sisera. Sisera comes out to, uh, to, to fight him there on the mount and he tells Deborah, look, I'm not going unless you come with me. And Deborah says, look, if I come with you, I'm going to get the credit, and you're not going to get the credit. Is you okay with that? He's like, well, I guess that's fine. He wasn't thinking. And so, uh, so <laughs> they go to Mount Tabor. They meet on Mount Tabor. Well, Israel just lays waste to these 900 chariots, just kills them. And they go running. They go running all the way across the country. In fact, they go running so far across the country, Israel chases them all across the country 
to the forest of the, of the Gentiles, is what it's called, the forest of the Gentiles. They run all the way to the forest of the Gentiles. They kill everybody there except for Sisera. Sisera gets so scared, he runs all the way back across the country, trying to flee away from the Israelites. He does eventually get away from them, and he goes into a tent of a lady, Jael. This was a big mistake. She meets him, and she says, hey, look, why don't you come into my tent? Stop running. I'll hide you. Now, the, the thing that's pointed out in the text to you is that Jael comes from a people that are related to Moses. Now, they happen to be a nomadic people. They happen to be tent makers. They pitch tents all over the place. They roam around the country. And uh, he comes in contact with these people. And hey, what a convenient way to really hide. And he meets this woman. Who knows what he's expecting this woman to give him. But this woman seemed very friendly, just like most of those people would have been. They'd welcome you in their home and feed you. Oh, my goodness, this is so great. Well, she decides to actually take up for her people. So he hides under a rug. And he says, hey, if they come looking for a man, tell them you didn't see one. <laughs> in the meantime, give me a drink of water. So she gives him a drink of water. She covers him back up. And he's laying there underneath the rug. And he's saying, hey, uh, just, just don't tell him I'm here. And so I don't know how long he plans to do this. But there, uh, eventually, she waits until he's covered up. She sneaks over to him as light-footed as she possibly can with a, with a spike, a tent spike and a hammer, and drives it through his temple. What's that? All the way into the ground. <laughs> uh, and yeah, exactly. The text then ends, and so he died. <laughs> uh, so this is a wonderful, heartwarming story uh, that you get. However, the story of Deborah and Barak is interesting on a number of levels. It's not just a story of deliverance. It's actually a story that's illustrating the division that exists inside the nation of Israel. And you don't, you may not on first read pick these things up, but it's explained to you in the poem that follows this battle. Because they go to grab their men, to assemble the nations of Israel, to come against their oppressors, to fight. And what we find out is they don't really show up. Not at, at least not all of them. So the following poem celebrates the deliverance, but it details the lack of tribal unity that exists within the group. Um, so if you look here, uh, Judges 5, I think I've got it there. Is it Judges 5? We'll go ahead and read it. Yeah, Judges 5, 14 to 18. Somebody read that for us. Why did you sit still among the 
Okay, so in this list, you get some very, not, sometimes not so subtle, remarks about some of the tribes of Israel. So we've got it, you've got them here in your packet. Participating, it seems, are Ephraim, Benjamin, Zebulun, Issachar, and Naphtali that are coming together to fight these oppressors. But Reuben, it says there were great searchings of heart. You know what that means? He thought about doing it. Then he thought better of it, and he didn't show up. He says, uh, Dan, why did you stay by the ships? In other words, Dan, you're, you are a coward. We'll see uh, in the next book, the guy that stays by the luggage, right? <laughs> Same kind of deal. Dan, Dan's there with him, staying by the luggage. Dan's over by the ships. He's a coward. Asher remained at home. Uh, Gad, which is Gilead, is also mentioned there. They stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Remember, they, they were part of the tribes over there. So they all, they all stayed over there. They didn't participate. Why, why didn't they participate? They actually asked that question. She asked that question in chapter 5. Why, why didn't they participate? So this story that we're looking at, which is a, a, just a crazy story, right? A story that is made for TV, really. The whole book of Judges is made for TV. And yet we look at this story and we're attracted to chapter four, but when you get into chapter five, you see what the author is actually really doing with this narrative. He's telling you, but as we go along in the book of Judges, those tribes who went to their own homeland and were actually one family are now beginning to develop tribal, uh, tribal disunity. And everybody's actually divided. They, well, we, should we fight? Ah. We're on the other side of the river. They're never touch us, right? So the beginnings of sectional rivalries are popping up. And you see that Deborah, after Deborah, Barak, Deborah and Barak, the land had rest. Yet again, we're told, yet had rest for 40 years. Let me go back. There's a sectional rivalries and 40 years. I missed this little map here. This is, a, this is the story of Deborah and Barak and uh, Sisera. So they all go up to Mount Tabor. So Sea of Galilee, this is all Jesus stuff over here, okay? Mount Tabor, he goes up here, and King of Hatzor is up here. Uh, and uh, this is the um, Harosheth Hagoyim, which is the forest that they run to. That's a forest of the Gentiles, Hagoyim of the Gentiles. So uh, here's Mount Tabor. They meet up here for battle. Uh, Sisera gets scared and he runs with his men. They retreat back here. Uh, Israel follows them, kills all the men back here. Then he gets scared, ah, and runs all the way back across the country and ends up right here in the tent of Jael where he meets his fate. All right. So just kind of getting you familiar with the land. But you see it, we're far no further north than we were before. And what, what the author of Judges, it seems, is trying to depict is that the first, you're seeing there's oppression across the entire nation. The entire nation rises up. But then there's also little skirmishes that go all the way throughout the nation as well. And so we're going to see that for the rest of the book. We're going to see it all over the place, uh, ending with the Philistines. And Samson. Questions? Tribal unity? Yes, you had Judah and Simeon, but nothing else 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Judah and Simeon are notably missing from the call out. Um, did I, I, I don't know if I had a blank there. Did I have a blank on that? Oh, no, I didn't. Okay. Uh, so, but Judah and Simeon are missing. Where are they? We don't know. But it's notable. Anytime a tribal list shows up, anytime, throughout the entire Bible, uh, pay attention to it. The 12 names. Uh, so Levi, Levi's technically everywhere. So, and they're not fighters. Uh, they're priests, and that's it. And so they will show up later on, a little bit later on, but, but uh, it's not uncommon to see Levi not in a list like that because they don't have land. So they're, they're uh, and Le- the Levites wouldn't be expected to fight. In fact, you'll see David later on won't be able to build a temple because he has too much blood on his hands. Similar kind of concept here. The Levites need to stay away from that kind of stuff. They're more or less protected. Um, but, uh, but yes, so when you see a list like that of 12, pay attention who's there, who's not there, because any person that's of the nation of Israel, they see those names, they know who those names are, right? They're right off the top of their head. Uh, so for us, when we see names that are not there, it, that's probably significant, even though we may not always know why. Yep. Go ahead, Timothy. No good. Yep, that's right. At the end of chapter four, is that a complete like, like the Moabites gone after that? Like all of them. Um, I know it says ten. No, the Moabites will come back. We'll, we'll see them in uh, the latter prophets. They'll be called out. They're they're still a nation. Okay. Yep. Yeah. 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 Any other questions or? Comments? Go ahead, Larry. What was the average life expectancy in those days? Good grief. Yeah. You get you lose things when a whole generation goes by. I mean, you lose yeah. appreciation. Well, remember, remember last week we were talking about why they fell away, and we saw in the text there arose a generation who did not know the Lord, meaning their parents did not teach them. We spent some time on that, but, but that's exactly right. I mean, as time, and as time goes by, if your parents don't teach you, and you don't teach your children, and then your children don't teach, it's not long before you get to an area where you've never heard the gospel. In fact, just quickly, um, we're, we're, I think, quickly approaching an air, uh, a time in places like Portland and New York and like the far areas, far reaches of the, of the U.S., where people have never, actually never heard of God or never actually even thought of, or never heard of Jesus and never even thought about worshiping Him, never heard the story of the gospel and everything like that. We're coming, we're going to come, eventually come back to that side pre-Christianity. Isn't that crazy? Think about that for just a second. Most of what we're dealing with now is 
uh, atheistic parents or people that left the church that stopped teaching their children, but their children have still kind of maintained some awareness of God, Jesus, the story of the Bible, and everything like that. We're going to approach a generation, probably a couple from now, where they don't teach their kids, their kids don't teach their kids, and we'll be in a situation where they've never even heard the story of Jesus. Imagine that. Isn't that strange? The evangelistic mission will change quite a bit in places like that in the coming generations. My kids may actually see that. It's bizarre. Not only unreached, but never even heard. Might as well be on an island in the middle of nowhere, you know. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, evangelism has, has changed a lot because there's not a base of knowledge that a lot of the evangelistic stuff was built on in the 50s and 60s. That's right. It's amazing what happens to Israel as they spiral out of control because there's not a king to actually point them and lead them in the right direction. So leadership. Um, as goes the leader, so goes the nation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, pray for our time in, uh, throughout Judges and just throughout this study that we not only gain a, a newfound respect for what's happening in the Old Testament, but also just to see the way your hand is working in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and just the, the, the tools you're using at your disposal and how evident in the text it's plainly stated that you are doing this to test Israel and to prove their heart. And Lord, we just pray that as we go through trials, as we endure that what these tests produce in us is endurance and faith, that throughout it all, as death draws near for all of us uh, every day, that we all see it as a trial coming our way. And we pray that it would produce in us endurance that we can finish strong through to the end. Give us confidence as we study your word. Give us confidence with your word to be able to deliver it to other people confidently, knowing what, it, what is in it and what you're doing in the text as you're giving it to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.